0: Daryl uh, Yoder-Bontrager, in our pre-worship meeting this morning, reminded us that worship is a subversive act. It's a way of reminding us who we are, a world that tries its best to tell us that we're something that we're really not. And so I would um, invite you, before, we, um, before I begin the sermon, And I'm going to suggest that we maybe make this a practice throughout this month, that you just take one moment and look around you and see one another and remember who you are and remember who this community is. Go ahead. Please take a look at each other and be glad. We are the body of Christ. I also want to recommend a book to you. Much of the, um, well, let's just tell the truth. All of the historical background material you're going to hear this morning in the sermon is based on material from this book. It's called Colossians Remixed, Subverting the Empire. Um, It is available in the church library. I really recommend this book to you um, for your reading. It will, um, I hope, be as enlightening to you as I feel like it's been to me. So credit where credit is due. Uh, That's by Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesma. Well, for the past few years, I've struggled to understand how our faith in Christ defines us and shapes our behavior. I've talked about this before from this pulpit, wondering aloud how George W. Bush and I can both claim to be followers of Jesus and yet behave so differently how he can participate in regular Christian worship And still advocate war and torture and trade policies which create and sustain misery around the world, even if they benefit us and our corporations. While I participate in Christian worship and come out a pacifist and believe that we're going to be judged as a nation based on our care for the poorest among us. And that I'm ashamed by the effects of global capitalism run amok. We both claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet we behave in dramatically different ways each claiming to be guided by the spirit and the teaching of Jesus. And I confess to not knowing how to make sense of this, except to say that he is wrong and I am right. But that doesn't get us anywhere at all. It's a conversation stopper, and it really doesn't do anything to resolve my struggle. Now, I know that comparing my faith journey to that of this president or any president is an apples and watermelons sort of comparison, his life. His impact, his importance, his power, and the pressures that he faces and the challenges that he faces are much, much bigger than mine. And picking on any political leader is easy. Um, it's like finding the mote in someone else's eye. Does that sound familiar? Hypocrisy is a long-standing accusation against Christians, one that we've all heard and maybe even know to be justified at times. We followers of Jesus so rarely follow Jesus. The harder part is to examine one's own life, And to ask, what difference does it really make that I claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is it that I'll go to heaven someday? Is that the ultimate meaning? Is that the final goal of my faith journey? Or is the effect more immediate, more earthy than that? Is Jesus only a personal savior whose primary concern is my salvation? Or is Christ up to something bigger, deeper, more all encompassing than that? And does Christ call me, does Christ call us to be part of that bigger, deeper, more all-encompassing thing? Or is it both? Is my salvation inextricably connected to the larger something so that one hinges on or depends upon the other? Well, we Anabaptists would say, yes, it is both. That the work of Christ is intended for our individual salvation and the salvation of the whole world. And that the two are very much connected We Jesus followers are both beneficiaries of that work and participants in it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And our participation includes not only our personal morality, though that is an important part of it. It also includes our communal life together, how we function as gatherings of believers and includes too how we function in the larger world, how we personally and as a congregation and as a global body of Christ engage with and inhabit the world around us. In other words, the work of Christ both for us and with us ought to shape our behavior in every area of our lives. No part of us or our behavior is left outside Christ's circle of influence. Now, fortunately, we're not without resources in conforming and being conformed to the work of Christ in us and in the world. We have the Bible, which contains instruction on what it means to be a disciple, a member of the people of God. Both Testaments provide this instruction in a variety of forms. Parables, stories, history, poetry, law, commandments. The challenge for us disciples living millennia after the scriptures were compiled is to somehow bridge the gap created by time. We need to figure out how to apply words written in a different language, in a different time and place, in a different culture with a different worldview to our 21st century, postmodern, post-Christian, post-everything that we used to take for granted context. Now, it's not so simple as saying the Bible said it. I believe it. that settles it because the Bible says lots of things. Some of them we try really hard to do and often with pretty good success, especially on the personal level, like being forgiving, like loving each other, like loving our neighbors, like participating in corporate worship and so on. The Bible also says lots of things that we don't do because we're afraid or we don't have sufficient trust. Or some other failure on our part, like the Jubilee or the communal sharing of wealth or the keeping of the Sabbath. And the Bible says lots of things that we don't do, not because we're unfaithful, but because we recognize that some things that seemed right two or three thousand years ago, like slavery and the stoning of prostitutes and an eye for an eye, justice and patriarchy. Well, they're simply not right anymore. All of these acts, whether faithful or not, involve negotiating that great gap. Between ancient scripture and contemporary living. So how do we get across that gap? Well, we get there, I believe, by doing more than reading the Bible. We get there, I believe, by reading the Bible under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We get there by insisting that the spirit is alive and well. And that everything, including the scripture and the church, is under the spirit's authority. We get there. And this is especially important in our Anabaptist self-understanding. We get there by recognizing that the best way to test and discern the influence and direction of the Spirit is through the gathered wisdom of the community. It's not enough for the Spirit to reveal something to one of us. That revelation must then be shared and tested by the community of saints who together determine if it is an authentic word from or movement of the Spirit or not. Well, it is to this kind of discernment, that the September worship planners are calling our congregation. We're calling for corporate discernment around what it means to be followers of Jesus in the context of empire. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century United States? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the global economy? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in a nation which claims to be Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian in the most powerful nation on earth? And what does it mean to be Christian when that most powerful nation is governed by people? who seem willing to go to any length to ensure our lifestyle and security to do what we ask them to do. Well, these are the kinds of questions that we'll be raising this month, not so much with the hope of answering them, although we will certainly have opinions and even convictions to share, but more with the hope of stirring us up to some serious conversation, which will, I hope, Lead to some serious evaluation of what it means to be a Jesus follower, which will, I pray, lead us to becoming ever more faithful, both individually and as a congregation. Now, let me say right from the get go that this quest will not and probably should not be easy and not just because we may be provoked to disagreement and even anger, not just because we may cross the lines of polite conversation here and there and insist that it's way past time to cross them. Not just because Pastor Sue and I or those sharing their personal testimonies may worry about being wrong or being or offending somebody, though we are Mennonite enough to worry about those things. The quest may not be easy. Because it may well cause us to change, to change our thinking, to change our worldview, to change our decision making process, to change our behavior. And to change our behavior in ways which may cause us trouble, which may inconvenience us, which may make us subject to ostracism and maybe even persecution. To change our behavior in ways which our neighbors and fellow believers may perceive as being peculiar, unorthodox, unpatriotic and subversive. To change our behavior in ways which may which may put us for the very first time in touch with what Jesus meant by the cost of discipleship and the taking up of our cross. This frankly scares me silly. I like my life pretty much the way it is. I like my church pretty much the way it is. I do like to complain sometimes, probably more often than I ought and critique the government and those parts of the church which seem to me at least to be its lackeys. I like to distinguish my kind of Christian from that other kind, whether the vapid or the rabid. I like being part of a congregation which is not afraid to get its hands dirty. By picking up after the excesses of our political and economic policies. I mean, isn't that enough? At least we're not just sitting inside some private fortress waiting for the Lord to come rescue us from the pagan hordes. We're doing stuff. We're doing good stuff. Stuff that puts us a little bit closer to what Christ came to reveal. But, and this is what I worry about once I say something from this pulpit, I'm stuck, I'm committed. At least I hope so. I hope that you will hold me accountable for what I say up here, not just today. Um, That you will insist that I be part of our communal discernment, that you won't either agree automatically or dismiss me out of hand, that you won't let me off the hook, even as you, I trust, don't want to be let off the hook. Whatever happens, whatever this month of worship leads us, I expect there to be there at the end with all of you beside me. Whatever change comes, let it come not because the preacher said so or because the worship planners really hope so. Whatever comes, let it come as a result of theological and spiritual ferment within this faith community. Let it be the result of a deep reading of scripture, a deep reading of our context and a deep listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit as that spirit speaks to us and through us. That, dear sisters and brothers, was a mighty long introduction. And I didn't even say the word Colossians yet. Colossians. There you go. Well, the world in which Paul lived and wrote the world inhabited by the small gathering of believers in Colossae was a world dominated by the Roman Empire. No big surprise there. We all know that it was in the reign of Caesar Augustus that a decree went out that all the world should be taxed. All the world. There's a clue right there, though. I admit I never noticed it before. All the world. In other words, all the world under Roman rule. In other words, as far as Rome was concerned, there was no other world than the world they ruled. They ruled over the whole world. Do we catch just a whiff of arrogance there? A whiff of power, a whiff of deity in that little phrase, all the world. Well, I think we can be sure that Luke's first readers did. And and Paul's did, too. Now, what we're about to do with the book of Colossians could be done with any biblical text. That's kind of the point of the children's stories that we'll be hearing through this month is that empire is all over the place in the scripture. It provides the backdrop for the biblical story. Empire forms the backdrop to the story of God's people. Well, as I said, Luke's readers understood themselves to be surrounded by empire and its claims, and so did Paul's. Like us, they knew their context very well. So well, perhaps that they took it for granted so well that the signs and symbols and facts of Roman rule might have been invisible to them, like a Coke sign or a Nike swoosh has become to us so common. We don't even see it unless we want it, just as most of us understand ourselves and always have understood ourselves as U.S. citizens. So the Christians in Colossae knew themselves to be Roman subjects like us. They may have come to respect and even love that rule. To believe its founding stories to share in the various celebrations of the empire and the emperor and to see them as harmless affiliations with their community and reasonable responses to the benefits of empire or even blessings to be thankful for. Now, it's kind of a strange thing ever since the worship commission decided on. Um, our theme of living faithful in the empire, I've seen connections all over the place. And, and one of them was when Linford Stutzman was here a few weeks ago. I noticed that he used the word empire several times in describing both the world of Paul and our own world. And one of the things he said that really stuck with me was that Romans built their temples and their shrines to their power in very prominent places in the community so that they would be the first things you would see when you entered the city. And they'd be the last things you'd see when you were leaving. And suddenly, while he said that, it was like all of a sudden these ancient ruins were revealed to be, in fact, signs and symbols of the empire. Signs and symbols which communicated power and threat and glory and the self-regard of Caesar. Those outsized buildings set in prominent places communicated that Caesar was larger than life. Godlike, all-powerful, capable of blessing or destroying entire nations and insistent on being the only game in town. You paid your respects, you bow down, you offer your wealth and your talent and energy. You give your sons to Caesar's armies and your daughters to Caesar's temples. You worship Caesar and all would be well. You resist Caesar, you be uncooperative, you offer your allegiance to some other God, you engage in anything which could be seen as subversive or undermining the rule of Rome and all could be really, really bad. We need only remember what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD to understand what it meant to resist the empire. No stone left unturned. No stone left unturned. Even the temple was destroyed, leaving no doubt that the only true God was Caesar. Now, that's the iron fist, the crude reality behind the lovely temple's And the awe-inspiring architecture, perhaps even more important was the velvet glove, the blessing bestowed on the nations by virtue of being part of the Roman Empire. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was more than just a marketing ploy. It was the real thing. Petty tyrants across the empire were subdued by the empire's armies. Rebels and brigands, pirates and outlaws were held in check by Roman might. In fact, one could argue that people were better off under Roman rule than they were before. Now, there was a cost for such peace and security taxes, for example, the reverence due the empire emperor uh, participation in rites and festivals in Caesar's honor, cooperation with Rome's emissaries and so on. For many people, small price to pay for the peace and security that came with Roman rule. And so a myth was born, a story of the beneficent Caesar whose strength kept chaos at bay whose generosity made even the deserts bloom. All good gifts came from Rome. Security, peace, and prosperity were the benefits of being part of the empire. Who needed some other god when Caesar provided all your needs? Now, not everyone benefited equally, to be sure. Slaves and women and children occupied the lowest rungs of the Roman hierarchy. They were property to be bought and sold and treated as their master wished. Wealth is concentrated in the hands of the few and flowed upward. The poor stayed poor unless they were somehow able to find a wealthy benefactor to rescue them in exchange for lifelong service. And this pattern was followed on the international level with goods and wealth flowing from the outlying colonies through the hands of tax collectors and other middle managers and onto Rome itself. And then that wealth was used to perpetuate the empire and to bring peace and security which Rome guaranteed and everywhere you turned, you were reminded that you were part of the empire, whether a citizen or a slave landowner or peasant, pagan or Jew. The signs of empire were everywhere. Temples and fortresses and palaces, Caesar's face on the coins in your pocket, on the walls of the marketplaces, on the wax that sealed your letter, on the lamp which lit up your rooms. The symbols of empire were so common that they blended into the background. They were taken for granted. You saw them, but you didn't think about them or their meaning. All pervasive, you lived and breathed and touched empire. The clothes on your back told you where you belonged in the Roman world. The home you owned or the hovel you occupied did the same. Again, everything communicated the same message Rome is the whole world and Caesar is its lord. And it was against this backdrop, against this all pervasive Roman Empire and its ultimate claims of allegiance and its myth of being the source of peace and prosperity. And its self perpetuating social and economic structures and its corporate logos everywhere, it was against this backdrop that Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians. Now, Paul was in Rome, imprisoned for stirring up trouble in the empire. Somewhere around 60 AD, less than 10 years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Paul had not been part of the founding of this community of believers. But he'd received a report from Epaphras, a co-worker of Paul's and one of the founders of the Colossian gathering. The Colossians were apparently struggling to know what it meant to be followers of Jesus in their context. Ought they adopt some of the rules of Judaism, a protected religion in the empire, and follow its rules and regulations? Or ought they engage in the mystical practices of the pagans, like the worship of angels, or the discipline of their bodies, or the attainment of secret and special forms of wisdom? Well, Paul uses his letter to the Colossians to define for them what it means to be faithful to Jesus and to live Christ-like lives in the empire. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to work our way through this letter chapter by chapter. I'll just touch a little bit on chapter one this morning. My primary purpose um, was really to, to try to paint the big picture, to set the backdrop against which we're going to be reading the text. And our hope is that by understanding the circumstances under which the Colossians live, we might get at least a little bit closer to hearing the letter as they did. This is not just an exercise of the historical imagination, because the better able we are to hear Colossians as its first readers did, the better able we're going to be to build a bridge across the divide of time and, I pray, find points of connection we might not otherwise have seen. Well, for today, I want to only draw your attention to two things in the first chapter of Colossians with the imperial backdrop in mind. The first is the language of fruitfulness in the early verses of the chapter. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is already bearing fruit in the world. The reign of God has already been established and is already recreating and redeeming the world. And that same good news is already bearing fruit within and among the Colossian believers from the day they heard and understood who Christ was. And what God had accomplished through Christ, that good news had been producing fruit in the Colossian community. And that fruit was revealed in every good work and in their desire to grow in their knowledge of God. And so they're already growing strong, able to patiently endure whatever suffering comes their way and ready to give thanks to God for rescuing them from darkness and bringing them fully into the light. Now, remember that Rome claimed to be the source of wealth. The source of fruitfulness, the source of redemption, the source of prosperity and security. Recall that it was Rome who made the desert bloom. Rome who rescued the world from chaos. Rome was the source of light in an otherwise dark world. And suddenly what we might perceive as traditional Christian language becomes instead a subtle subversion of the claims of empire. God is the source of fruit, the provider of every good gift, not Caesar. God, through Christ, is already making the Colossians better than they were. Not Caesar. God is the one who called them from out of chaos and into the light. Not Caesar. I mean, can we see what Paul is up to here? He's reclaiming what Rome has attempted to usurp and restoring it to its rightful owner. He's hinting, albeit in a way so subtle that we might miss it if we're not aware of the context, that Rome's ultimate claims are lies. Well, then Paul puts away the subtlety and picks up the trumpet. In verses 15 to 20, Paul makes some claims that may even have made Caesar blush. Christ is the image of the invisible God. God made manifest. God made flesh. God dwelling among us. And everything in heaven and on earth was created through him and for him. Everything. Nothing exists in time or eternity which does not have Christ as its source, including the powers of this world, whether invisible demonic powers Or visible structures of human power like the empire itself. They too, whether they know it or not, were made through Christ and for Christ. They belong to Christ and will, whether they like it or not, be redeemed by Christ on the last day. Christ holds the whole world together. And Christ is also the head of the church. The first one raised from the dead, but by no means the last. And through Christ, God was pleased. Note note the tense. This has already happened. God was pleased. To reconcile all things, whether in earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. As N.T. Wright notes, the Colossians had not aligned themselves with just any old cult figure or leader. They were subjects of the one true God, citizens of God's reign and followers of the one who resides at the very center of the universe. Now, again, recall all those claims made by the empire and the emperor. Notice here that Paul does not subtly subvert those claims. He rips them down and reveals them to be nothing more than lies. Whether the emperor knows it or not, it is Christ who rules, Christ who reigns, Christ who brings peace, Christ who holds the whole world together. And whether he likes it or not, even the empire belongs to Christ and will be redeemed by Christ like every other child of God from the beginning of time to the end. The empire may lay claim to Israel and the world. But when our eyes are opened by the truth of Jesus, we know that claim to be false. And with that knowledge, everything, everything is called into question. And with those cosmic claims firmly stated, Paul sets about telling the Colossian Christians what it means for them to live faithfully in the empire. Well, I believe that we, too, are called to live faithfully in the empire. American power is a given in our world. Our national myth tells us that we are the greatest, strongest and best nation to ever have graced the planet. All the other nations tremble in fear of our might. Our allies do our bidding and offer their support in exchange for our blessing. Evil dictators fear our wrath and it is only our military prowess which holds back the advance of chaos. We are the last best hope of humanity. We are a city on a hill. Our colors don't run. Our flag is a beacon of hope to the world. We need no allies when the cause is just, and we swallow whatever lies and half truths are used to justify our military adventures, and we swallow them easily because we know deep in our hearts that we would never intentionally do harm. We are America, after all. I mean, this is the story that I at least grew up on, a story that is deeply embedded in our self understanding as a people. We're the good guys the white-headed cowboy who only fights when he has to and only then to right an injustice and save the town from evildoers. While there may be good guys elsewhere, they look to us for guidance, for leadership, for the setting of the moral compass. The signs of our strength are everywhere, with every public building and business flying the flag, every coin sporting the face of a former president in the name of God in whom we trust. And right alongside those signs are the signs of our prosperity with corporate slogans and symbols on our clothing, our cars, the food we buy, and on our TVs, phones, computers, public schools, and highways. The wealth of many nations continues to flow into the United States even if not so robustly as it once did. Wage slaves in Cambodia, Nicaragua, and Mexico produce our clothing. Their children cannot get health care or education, but we can buy cheap chinos. And here at home, The wealth, too, flows upward, especially in the last decade. Wealth is concentrated among the very few. Upwards of 40 million Americans live in poverty. The children of the poor are exploited by corporations, underserved by our educational system, imprisoned by the legal system, and sent off to die in order to prop up our lifestyles and security. It seems apparent to me that our circumstances, our context, are quite similar. To that of our ancestors in first century Colossae, we live for all intents and purposes and whether we want to admit it or not, we live in the empire. And so I believe our mission is the same as theirs to learn what it means to live faithfully to Jesus Christ in the empire. Now, there's one striking difference between the ancient empire and our own. Rome was thoroughly pagan. The Christians were a tiny and oppressed minority meeting in house churches across the empire. They were considered peculiar at best, maybe subversive at worst. But overall, they were a minor irritation in the empire. They were never really a threat and certainly not a significant influence for the first several hundred years of church history. The Colossian Christians were a small group of oddballs trying to be faithful in a culture which did not appreciate nonconformity. A culture suspicious of any group claiming loyalty to anyone other than Caesar and his empire. We, on the other hand, live in a self-proclaimed Christian nation. We're the furthest thing from being a persecuted minority. We have a Christian president, Christian legislators, Christian judges, Christian media. The Christian right remains a significant player in national politics. The content of our political discourse is moral and even theological, with candidates from both sides attempting to explain their positions in terms of their personal faith in Jesus Christ. We sing God bless America. Our presidents and newscasters sign off with the words God bless America. And even our wars are described in theological language as the fight between good and evil. Everything from our economic policies to our military strategies to our belief in the free market are claimed to be founded in God's plan for human freedom. Now, in its extreme form, of course, we can easily identify the idolatry and all the rhetoric of God and country. We can easily see through the administration's claim to be serving the war, the the Lord uh, in in Iraq or to be following biblical principles when cutting taxes for the wealthy. Uh, That kind of thing we can spot a mile off and so resist its nonsensical call. If anything, I think we may be risk not taking it seriously enough because it's so transparently wrong. And we need to remember that many. If not most of our sisters and brothers in Christ, just don't see anything wrong with it at all. But like all such powers, our empire also is capable of subtler forms of temptation. We may not buy the, the, the rhetoric of God inspired warfare, but we buy an awful lot of other stuff. We carry in our bodies the signs of empire. We listen to the imperial voice on our radios and televisions. With the empire, we call our lifestyles blessed and forget the cost to people around the world. Faithful living is not just about resisting the military or picking the right candidate or giving the right gifts. Faithful living, as Paul understands it, means living as if Christ is indeed everything Paul claimed him to be. It means living as if every choice, every decision, every plan, every goal is to be held under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It means stepping back far enough from the daily routine to begin noticing the imperial product placement everywhere we turn. And learning to not only turn away from it, but to actively and prayerfully resist its many attempts to form us into good citizens of the empire. For whatever fruit is being born in this world is born of God. Every fruit being born within us is born of God. The spirit which called us out of chaos and into the light is the spirit of Christ, not the spirit of America. Whatever blessing we have received has come from God, the giver of all gifts, not from the empire or the American dream or the American way of life. And no matter what we've learned about our founding fathers or the inherent goodness of our political and economic systems, no matter what the American myth may claim, no matter what our dearest Christian friends may claim, no matter what we may wish to be true, no matter what is easier to live with. We must reckon with the claims Paul makes about just who Jesus is. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of God, the one through whom all was made and through whom all is reconciled to God. The only one, the only one worthy of our allegiance, our faith, our trust, our lives. William Stringfellow puts the case in stark terms. There is only one path, one way to life. That way is Jesus. Every other way, every other entity claiming to be Lord, every other power and throne and authority will end in death. And So the choice really is between life and death. And just as God called the people of Israel to choose life, so I believe God is calling us, calling us to place our faith and our hope in Jesus and only in Jesus, the Christ, the Redeemer. Such a call is not answered lightly. It would, I think, be fair to say that just as we U.S. Christians have grown too cozy with empire, so we've grown too comfortable with the claims of the gospel. We've reduced those claims to matters of right thinking and right believing. But if Paul is right, the gospel demands not only our hearts and our minds, but also our strength. It demands everything from us, just as it has given everything to us. And it calls us to make that commitment while living in a world on the way to redemption, but not yet fully redeemed. A world which offers counterclaims to those of the gospel, claims now dressed up in the language of our own faith, and so all the more difficult to name and to resist. And so we come back to discernment. We come back to that good old Anabaptist insistence that we listen to the words of Colossians as best we can, that we listen for the Spirit's voice speaking through those words, and that together we wrestle ourselves across the bridge separating that first century gathering of believers and our own community. Together, arguing and debating and listening and praying ourselves towards some common commitments, commitments which may well carry us beyond what we've grown to believe as faithfulness, commitments which may take us to some hard places, putting us at odds with much that surrounds us and much we've always believed to be true, commitments which are impossible to keep on our own, commitments which require the gathered community to keep, Commitments shaped less and less by the empire all around us, and more and more by the gospel bearing fruit within us and in the world. Well, in closing, and yes, I do intend to close, let me offer this word of personal confession. I often feel, I often feel as though my faith hangs by a thread. I struggle with the meaning of Jesus. I wonder what difference he makes. It's a struggle made all the harder when I see his name so closely linked with what seems to me to be empire thinking idolatry. I sometimes worry that it's all a game, a sham, a pose that we take in order to reduce our fear of death. I ask myself how our community really differs from the Rotary Club or or the Elks or some other well-meaning and generous collection of folks. Now, I don't think or feel all these things all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. But I confess that I sometimes do. And I make this confession to tell you how important these questions of faithful living are to me personally. I'm not asking for you all to agree with me just to prop up my faith. Please don't do that. What I am asking... What I'm hoping is that you will agree with me that these questions are serious, that they are questions of life and death and that they are questions worthy of a deeper level of conversation and discernment than we may be used to doing in this gathered community. I need to know that my people, and that's who you are, I need to know that my people are willing to take this risk with me. The risk of calling into question our relationship to nation, to culture, to lifestyle, to empire and to risk that scary, scary step all for the sake of greater faithfulness to Jesus. I cannot do this alone. I will lose my way. I will lose my heart. But as we work at this together, as we work at this together, listening to the scripture, listening to the spirit, listening to one another, I know we will find our way. If not to some perfect form of faithfulness, at least to somewhere a little bit closer to the way of the cross. Somewhere a little bit closer to faithful living in the empire. May God make it so. Amen.